the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time for Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Dr. Chen is the pastor at Grace Church of the Bay Area, a church committed to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ through verse-by-verse expository preaching to learn exactly what God has revealed in His Word. Now, here's Dr. Chen with today's message. Last week, as we began the new year, 2020, we started a new book, 1 Corinthians. And we just introduced who Paul was or is, as well as his companion Sosthenes, as he introduces himself and introduces the book, sends a typical greeting of the time, adjusted a little bit, as we see in the various epistles uh, by the writers of the New Testament. And we've come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, and I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is our passage for this morning. As we continue looking at this greeting that seems like a typical greeting, seems almost mundane, we see it in almost every epistle, but I assure you is packed with theology and doctrine. Verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're introduced here to the recipient of Paul's letter, the believers who belong to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city. It's located in southern Greece, 45 miles west of Athens, and at that time was part of the Roman province known as Achaia. Its history is kind of interesting. We won't go into a lot of details, but Corinth was destroyed by the Roman general Mummius in 146 B.C. It wasn't until about 100 years later that the city of Corinth was restored by the infamous Julius Caesar, in 44 B.C. We jump ahead about a hundred years later at the time that Paul wrote this epistle to the church that was now there. Corinth over that time had grown to become a very wealthy, very influential, very rich, but very corrupt and immoral city. In fact, at that time, the city of Corinth was so vile that there was a common phrase in the area which was to Corinthianize. This emerged in reference to the gross immoralities practiced in Corinth. And so it was kind of like a a slang word where if someone uh, was doing something really gross and immoral, you would use that phrase like, oh, don't Corinthianize. Why are you doing that? Why are you Corinthianizing? This was in reference uh, to all of the grossness in that city that it was known for, But specifically, we see that historically in the worship of Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess 
of love. That uh, temple there to Aphrodite had uh, multiple priestesses, which basically served as prostitutes. And so men, in the name of worshiping Aphrodite, would come and do what prostitutes do with those women who were all in the name of worship. Now, the city of Corinth had two harbors. And if you know anything about trade, and if you understand why San Francisco and New York City are are such powerful cities in our country, it's because of access to trade through water. This city, Corinth, had two harbors, making a very significant trade city for most of Greece, but also for much of the entire Mediterranean region. And so you get an understanding of not only the importance of this city, but in essence, by virtue of that fact, the importance of the testimony and witness of the church there. In addition to all of this, Corinth was also the host of the Isthmian Games, which were rivaled in popularity only by the Olympian Games. And it was hosted in Corinth, which, of course, increased its popularity even more. Indicative of the success of the city at this time was the presence of schools of both rhetoric and philosophy, which, among other things, lent to Corinth's flashy imitation of the city of Athens. On a spiritual level, Paul's work in Corinth is recorded for us in Acts chapter 18, right starting in verse 1, where he founded the church on his second missionary journey. And since that time that the church was planted uh, by Paul, There grew divisions and other sins in the church that Paul addresses in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And naturally, as we study through 1st Corinthians, we're going to see a lot of these uh, sins and uh, immoralities within the church practiced by believers that Paul is addressing, Paul is confronting. Not to excuse it, but you have to understand that this was the early church. And so a lot of the things they're doing would just seem absolutely uh, just unfathomable within a church to us today, but that's because we're standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of churches uh, throughout the ages. This was one of the first. They were just learning. They didn't even have uh, the majority of the New Testament at that time. And again, I'm not excusing their sin, but you understand why, though they were doing these things, Paul, as we'll see in a few moments, still refers to them as true Christians. Well, there were uh, basically what had happened is that the believers had a difficult time breaking with the sin and the worldliness of the society and the culture around them, not unlike the American church today. For them in particular, the Corinthian church, this resulted in factions and general spiritual immaturity, which makes sense. On the one hand, and we'll look at this later as we get further along in 1 Corinthians, there were factions, there was arrogance about uh, who their discipler was or who they were associating with, and you understand because the apostles were still there. And you do see this to a certain degree, not to that extent today when someone says, oh, I'm, I'm all about John MacArthur or I'm all about R.C. Sproul or I'm all about John Piper. You don't see it to the degree that the Corinthian church did, but you can understand that the apostles were still alive and they were interacting with them. They were sending them letters. And so naturally it could become a source of, of pride to say like, oh, no, I'm buddies with Paul. I follow him. And no, I'm with this guy or I'm with that guy. 
And when you talk about spiritual immaturity, of course, whenever the secular society, in terms of of their sin and their views uh, that disagree with the Scriptures, when those infiltrate the thinking of Christians, then naturally the church cannot grow. It's going to remain immature because its individual members are immature. Despite all of this, Paul describes the church at Corinth as a true church of God. And naturally, its members, the Corinthian believers, as true believers. And we will see this not only as we impact the book verse by verse, but even this morning as we continue studying Paul's greeting to the Corinthians. And as we do that, we will receive not only information about this specific church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, but also about all Christian churches in general, as I present to you this morning five classifications of the true church. Five classifications or designations of the true church. What is a true church? Why can you be called a true church? In other words, why can you be called a true believer, a follower of Christ? The first classification of the true church is that the true church belongs to God. The true church belongs to God. I'm going to pick apart verse 2, section by section, phrase by phrase. And we get this from the first phrase and where he's, he writes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. We know who he was addressing. This letter was hand-delivered as they were during that time. And so obviously he's sending his letter and writing his letter to a Christian church. Why write the church of God at Corinth? It, it, it's obvious, right? If I, if I was going to a meeting uh, that I had set weeks in advance with Josh, I don't show up there and go, hey, Josh, husband of Irish, why specify that? I mean, that'd be different if I was talking about him in general to someone else, and there's a lot of Joshes, which Josh do you mean? But I'm there with him, specifically addressing him. And we will see there is a profound theological truth and a point that he's trying to make before he goes into an entire long letter of rebuking them by calling them the church of God. He's simply emphasizing that the church belongs to God. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, the church does not belong to any individual. It does not belong to any group. And again, you can see the significance of specifying that when he could have easily, were he a different type of man, Paul, just said, this is my church. You follow me rather than God. He's an apostle. He established the church. He's penning Scripture. But the church, the local church, any local church, does not belong to any individual or group, not even if that individual is an apostle. And we're not talking about a building or a name. We're not saying that that building belongs to God or that name, that trademarked name belongs to God. The church is the people of God. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. If the church was just a building, we'd be in serious confusion and a a big problem because then our church also happens to be a secular high school. Very strange, right? And you know this as true believers, 
Yes, we refer to the church because it's easier to refer to that church located at this address. But ultimately, on a spiritual level, when we're talking about the church, when we say the church is the body of Christ, it's not a bunch of brick and mortar and wood that's scattered all over the world. We're talking about the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ. And throughout this, this is what he's talking about this morning. And so the church belongs to God. The people belong to God. And the local church is a particular group of people in a specific place, like Corinth or Burlingame, that belongs to the larger body of believers found worldwide. And so this applies, everything we're going to say this morning applies to all believers, but understand in the context, he is addressing a specific local church. And so what we're looking at this morning applies to all true churches, all local churches. Now, living out this principle that the church belongs to God and not anyone else goes beyond just avoiding certain terminology. And I understand uh, our desire to do that as believers. We want to be safe. We don't want to be misleading. And so we hear something like this and we say, well, we need to stop saying, oh, that's Roger's church or that's, that's Agnes's church or whatever it may be, Right. Look, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine to say to someone from another church, oh, I go to that church that Ray goes to, Ray's church. They understand you're not saying that Ray owns the church. It's just a way to specify this church if they're not familiar with the name of the church. The problem goes deeper when you start behaving or thinking that an individual or group owns or controls the church. I don't think any true believer will say anyone owns the church in terms of the people. But in so many churches, there is a danger that there are certain people that everyone defers to outside of the biblical roles of pastors, elders, and deacons that they refer to, and it skews the church. It messes up the church. For example, sometimes in a lot of churches, it's the big donors they're not elders, they're not deacons, but if you offend them and they stop giving, the church is done because they give 50%, 60%, 90% of the budget. And so unbiblically, there are people who defer to the big donors. No one would say that the church belongs to this guy, but in decision-making, even in elders' meetings, it becomes clear who runs the show because they will only do what is okay with him And it becomes not about honoring God, it becomes about the fear of losing finances. Maybe it's not a big donor. It could be someone who's just very vocal or easily offended. I've been in meetings with church leadership where people have said, well, uh, yeah, that's probably best for the church, but we really don't want to offend this individual. Obviously, this would be in, in smaller churches where everyone is more influenced by everyone else. It can be a pastor. It can be an elder who has forgotten his true calling to serve the people, gets cocky, gets proud, gets thin-skinned, and all of a sudden is controlling the church in a way that he's more like a king than a servant. And you could probably think of other situations you've heard of where you go to a church and obviously one person is in charge who shouldn't be in charge. Regardless, Paul begins with a very important distinction. You, 
us as a church, but you as an individual believer are the church of God. And when you go on and see all that the Corinthians are struggling with, you will see very well why this reminder is so important to them and perhaps to us as well. We'll talk about this more, but even on the individual level, not just on the policy doctrine level, not just on the Sunday morning organization as Grace Church of the Bay Area level, you as a church of God on an individual level, you don't belong to yourself either. You don't belong to your boss. You don't belong to the police. You don't belong to the United States of America. You belong to God. And that should influence every decision you make. Classification number two of the true church of God. The true church is separated for God. Separated for God. I find this in the phrase, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctify means to consecrate. The word consecrate, consecrate means to separate for holy use, for a sacred purpose. Uh, you see this a lot in the Old Testament. Different uh, items within the temple were consecrated to the Lord. So you couldn't just come in from the field and go grab that goblet and drink out of it. It was consecrated for a holy, sacred use in the worship of God in the temple. We now are those vessels that were once at the temple individuals, human beings who have been set apart, consecrated, sanctified to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, as Christians, we have been set apart to Jesus Christ from all that is worldly and profane. This isn't just that we are set apart as a group. We still act like the rest of the group, but we just happen to serve God. No, we have been separated completely down to the very core of our souls from all that is worldly, all that is profane. This happens by virtue of our faith in Christ and our union with Him. And as we saw with Paul's dramatic salvation story last week, we are not set apart, chosen by God, because God looked down and deemed us worthy. We are not consecrated because we on our own merit, our own actions, our holy thinking, we're halfway there already. No, no, no. We were so far. We were so, so far. And so this set apart is purely by God's grace. It is purely His will. It's purely for His good pleasure and has nothing to do with how well you perform before that day or that time. In fact, the Scriptures are very clear that you didn't even have a chance to be a, quote, good person before God called you because he called you before you existed, before the beginning of time, before even creation. It is completely the choice and will of God, despite our sinfulness and our innate proclivity to reject him. He chose us. And this is closely connected to our third classification, and so I want to go right into that. Our third classification of the true church is called by God called by God. We saw separated for God, now called by God. He writes, saints by calling. Now this is interesting because we just saw that we are sanctified in Christ and now we are called saints. The word sanctified in our last point is a derivative of the Greek word which means holy. 
or holy one. The word saints here is that word holy. And so sanctified in the Greek is a derivative of this word saints, which literally means holy or holy ones. And if you have the NIV, it says holy, not saints. These two obviously work together. Now, the idea of a holy person or a saint does not have any at all of the concept of the Catholic version of sainthood. Rather, the Bible is clear that all Christians are called saints. And that makes sense when you understand the Greek word just means holy or holy one. And this encompasses our first two points. Saints are those who are set apart to God and belong to Him. Both sanctified or being sanctified and holiness speak of our position in Christ. Okay? That's very important. Our position in Christ. In other words, because of the gospel truth and our acceptance of it, Christians are viewed by God as holy and righteous. We have that title, sanctified, holy, saints. We are viewed by God because of the blood of His Son as those in the category with the nameplate on our desks that says holy, sanctified, called by God. That is our position, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's our practice. It doesn't mean we automatically act this way. We know, for example, that the Corinthian believers were far from behaving in holiness or acting saintly. In the same way, though we are called by God as those who are set apart and are positionally holy, we can easily act different or differently than our calling and our position in God's kingdom. In fact, it is our very nature to behave contrary to our calling for the simple fact that we are sinners. Even as believers, you understand if you just do nothing, if you do not discipline your mind, if you do not meditate on Scripture, if you do not pursue holy living, you are like someone who is floating in a rushing river. You will naturally be swept away into sin. It takes effort. It takes passion. It takes discipline. It takes an understanding of God's Word. You can think of it this way in regards to our position versus our practice. Kings don't always act kingly. In fact, if you study world history, many kings acted far differently than the fairy tales we tell our young children. Presidents don't always act presidentially. I think over the past few decades, we don't even know what that means anymore. But you know generally what that means when you say presidential, right? I think there's an airline that has a presidential class, right, in their higher tier uh, membership thing, their mileage plus or whatever it is. Because we understand that that means acting dignified. Yet, a king who does not act kingly, a president who does not act presidentially, 
still holds the position and title of king and president, though they're not acting like it. And in the same way, we are, or we have rather, the title of saint. We have the position of sanctified, but you and I know very well that we don't always act like it. And so, I want you to be very clear in your own mind that there is a huge difference between who you are positionally and who you choose to be practically. Don't ever think it is enough just to be saved. There is an entire body of work from the lips of the Holy Spirit Himself that demands our behavior be holy, including our thought life and demeanor, demands that our behavior represent who we are positionally. Like the Corinthians, we are surrounded by a society and a culture that focuses on things like personal comfort, pleasure, reputation, and money. And money. And money. And money 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 and money. Because we're told the lie, well, maybe it's true in the secular world, if you want those things, more money. You want comfort, more money. You want someone to love you, more money. You want physical pleasure, more money. Money buys it all. And so there is that temptation we have there because of the society around us. We seek these things. And so we're pulled by our position in Christ, uh, but what our flesh desires. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You're invited to join them for worship service in Burlingame, Sundays at 11 a.m., Visit the website gracebayarea.org for directions and other information or to view a live stream of the service. As a listener-supported program, we ask that you consider making a tax-deductible donation so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Donations can be made through our website, kfax.com. 